fellow assassins to another episode of the Dark Assassins Podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So for those of you uh, diligently keeping track uh, at home, uh, you will know that this episode is pretty darn nice. And to continue the niceness of the episode, why don't we just roll on in to this week's trivia question. So this week's trivia question, honestly, I think some people might get stumped. Other people are going to think this one's pretty darn easy. I guess it kind of depends on who you are. But this week's trivia question is which of the following companies was founded first? Apple, Nintendo, Microsoft, or Sony? So which of those four companies was founded first? And that is your trivia question for the week. Now, in the past couple years, and specifically this year, VR, or virtual reality, has been kind of picking up some steam. So, specifically this past year with Apple announcing their Vision Pro headset, um, kind of everyone got everyone up in arms about that. You know, everyone's super hyped for it. Uh, But even before that, um, you know, Facebook um, created their very, they've had various lines of virtual reality headsets um, trying to create the metaverse, which kind of flopped. Um, But even before that, going even further back, I, I, I remember I was Back in, I think, high school sometime. I don't remember. I was at some, like, coding. I don't, I don't even remember what, it, what, what, the, what you would call the event. I guess it was kind of like a hackathon, but not really. It was kind of like a... Uh, not... I don't know. Basically, what happened was we went there. It was for, like, video game development, kind of, sort of. Um, So, basically, we kind of went to this uh, conference, symposium, whatever the heck you want to call it, event. Um, And they pretty much, you know, walked us through some, like, various labs and tutorials and, like, how to use the the Unity game engine to, like, you know, develop, like, a basic game or whatever. Uh, But at that event, I I don't remember what year it was. It was either 2013 or 2014. I I can't remember the exact year. But, you know, getting close to a decade ago, um, they had one of the stations that they had, like, at this event um, was a, a VR headset. And I believe it was the Oculus Rift, I think, was was the headset. And it was, they had, like, and this was in, like, the super, super early days of VR. Like, this was, like, um, very, very early on. And I remember putting that thing on and just thinking, wow, this is insane. Like, Obviously, you know, there was this massive contraption on my head and it wasn't, you know, insanely immersive because, you know, you have this massive thing on your face and on your head and whatnot. Um, But just being in there and being able to, like, 
as you move your head around from side to side, up and down, like the things around you change. And it was just so cool to see that. Now, granted, this was just basically a tech demo. It wasn't like an actual game or uh, an environment or anything like that. But I thought it was super cool. And that was the first time and the last time that I have uh, ever been in virtual reality. But the reason why I kind of bringing this whole virtual reality thing up is because it's kind of, you know, being talked about more with, like I said, with the Apple Vision Pro headset. And also, I watched a movie this week. (laughs) Now, this obviously isn't a uh, movie review podcast. There's plenty of those out there. But the reason why I bring it up is because it's related to virtual reality. And that is because I watched Ready Player One this week. And if you haven't seen that movie... Personally, I thought it was pretty darn good. Um, it obviously takes place in the future, uh, but the the premise is there's like this virtual reality uh, world environment, if you will, where you it's it's basically what the Zuck wanted the metaverse to be, but it actually worked and succeeded, and people like using it. Um, that that's a basic uh, uh, summary, I guess, of what you could of what you could say it is. Uh, so it's called the Oasis. Um, if you haven't uh, watched the movie or even read the book, um, and of course, you know, seeing something this technologically advanced and thinking, you know, my my programmer mind thinking of, you know, the code behind it all type of a thing. Uh, Obviously, I thought how cool it would be if I could make my own, you know, virtual reality universe like that. And obviously, that would be insanely cool. But there is no way in heck that I would be able to do that. Um, I don't Personally, I don't think I have the skill set, and two, I definitely don't have the time uh, to create something that massive and expansive. Heck, I've been trying to work on my own video game, which is like a, a fraction of the scale of what a VR environment would be, and I've been working on that for coming up on two years now, and I basically have nothing more than a few tech demos and whatnot like a graphics tech demo which is super basic and then some command line based tech demos now granted i haven't been it's not like i've been working on that non-stop obviously i haven't talked about it in a few weeks because i've been focused on other things so you know other side projects come up um i get busy with you know life in general you know things kind of fall by the wayside so yeah anyway uh, back to the the VR environment. Um, the thing that was really cool about you know the movie and kind of where VR is sort of starting to head a little bit. It's still like you know tech demo exclusive type thing right now. Is this idea of adding sensations, I guess you could say, to virtual reality. So rather than just you seeing your environment through whatever headset you're wearing and hearing the environment with, like, headphones or something, you can basically, 
you know, wear like some kind of gloves or some kind of suit or something that you that can make it feel like, you know, if you see, say, an apple in VR and you try to reach out and touch it, obviously now, like, you're not going to, you know, feel anything. But the, the idea of these, you know, kind of gloves or suits or whatever is that you could reach out to try to touch that apple and you would get feedback, you know, say in your gloves or whatever, um, that you're actually, to make it feel like you're actually holding that apple. Um, so I think, I'm trying to remember when it was. It was maybe within a year or two or so ago. I know MKBHD, I think he made a video about like some kind of early demo of like kind of gloves, like for basically to use in VR to kind of, you know, kind of simulate um, interacting with objects. Now, obviously, in, in the Ready Player One timeline in universe or whatever, that they pretty much already have all that. Um, and just being able to be, you know, fully immersed and be able to, like, fully interact with your environment in that way, and even in, in the case in the movie, you know, have some kind of, like, uh, cabling system or three or omnidirectional like treadmill or something that can make it basically make it seem like you're walking and running around in the environment itself Um, now I know there are some like super specialized rigs out there today that kind of sort of serve the same purpose Um, but obviously they're not exactly cheap Um, but the reason why I bring this up is because as cool and awesome as I think it would be to have a complete virtual world like that I just with how the world is right now I just can't see it happening without being a absolute it would be a privacy nightmare with how the world is right now. And I and I with the current tech companies that are at the top right now, I just can't see any of them making a environment like, you know, the Oasis from the movie without it being one massive data harvesting scheme like uh Facebook tried to do with the metaverse. Um and, and I, ju- I just can't see it. Now, if some, some, somehow this, you know, world did exist and the company behind it wasn't trying to sell the souls of its users um, to the highest bidder and actually did care about privacy, then I would be 100% all for it. But I just, I personally don't necessarily see that with the way things are right now. Um, now I don't want to spoil the movie or the book for anyone that hasn't seen it or read it or whatever, um, but some people might potentially try to make the argument that privacy didn't even exist in the movie or the book anyway because there was an instance where uh, a corporation was able to track down the main character, um, but part of the 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 counter argument to that would be the corporation that tracked him down di- isn't the same corporation that built and owns the oasis which is you know the vr environment the corporation that tracked him down was essentially a corporation that was trying to 
take over, I guess you could say. So basically there was like a, a contest going on inside the, the virtual world that whoever won would essentially get ownership of the entire, you know, virtual reality. Basically, would they'd be able to own the Oasis. So the basically the entire goal of this company was to win the challenge and take control of the Oasis. So they didn't actually own it. So that would kind of be like using a real-world example. Um, Elon has basically kind of said that he wants to create an everything app. You know, the, people are saying that he's going to be turning Twitter, now X, or whatever the heck you want to call it, basically turn that into an everything app, kind of like China has their WeChat, which is basically the everything app where you can message, shop, basically do whatever you want. It, it's Others <laughs> would argue that it's a... Uh, data harvesting scheme for the Chinese Communist Party, but, you know, you can uh, make your own decisions on that. I won't uh, necessarily uh, give my opinion one way or the other, but I think you would probably know what, what my thoughts on that would be. But regardless, imagine Elon came through and created his everything app that he dreamed of and he also created a, a virtual reality world to go along with it. And when Elon passed away, he would he created a challenge that whoever uh, wins the challenge gets you know full ownership of his his app. And then now imagine the Zuck comes along and tries to win the challenge so he can take the app over. Um, this is basically, you know, kind of the parallel of what was going on. Now, say you are the player and the Zuck is creating accessories for Elon's world, right? And you purchased a one of the accessories that the Zuck was creating and got it shipped to your house, right? So the Zuck would be able to know... Uh, who you really are in the real world, and where you live. Uh, but he wouldn't necessarily know who you are in the virtual world. But if somehow you let it slip who you are in the virtual world, then the Zuck would, you know, be able to track you down and yada, yada, yada. So that's that's kind of one of the, the storylines that happens in the movie, um, sort of, kind of, to an extent. Um, so, but obviously in this case, the Zuck didn't own the world, but because he, you know, knew where you live because you purchased something from him, um, if he was able to say, get your username from Elon's world, then he'd basically have you. Um, so that's basically what happened, uh, in the, in the movie without going into too much specifics. Um, but yeah, so with, with the current players that there are right now, I just I just don't see it happening. Um, now that's not to say that tech. I guess the movie. Um, well, actually, I, I guess the the Oasis was kind of initially brought to. If you wish, I think it was like 2025, maybe. I don't remember. But the movie itself, I believe, takes place in 2047, I think, is the year. Um, so obviously there, there's, there's a ways away uh, before that time comes upon us. 
Um, so maybe something could change. Maybe there will be some startup that comes up that, you know, makes this, you know, virtual world and they are actually privacy conscious and don't want to sell your data. But with the current players as it stands right now, I, 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 I just don't see it. Um, but, you know, speaking of privacy, I think that's a, a pretty good segue into this week's cybersecurity tip. Now, for this week's cybersecurity tip, this one might not sound like a cybersecurity tip, but you're going to have to bear with me. And this week's tip is to test your backups. Now, some of you are probably already thinking, what does testing backups have to do with cybersecurity? Because I thought cybersecurity was all about making sure that hackers can't exploit your programs or how to protect yourself against malware or ransomware or spyware or any of this other stuff or how can I protect my organization from phishing attacks, that kind of a thing. And that is all very valid cybersecurity tips and that is obviously the main line that you want to focus on, which is your lines of defense. How can you defend against cyber attacks? But cyber attacks can happen to even the best of us. Now, I'm not saying I got I got hacked. I didn't, um, at least not yet. Uh, <laughs> but no, I have not been hacked, so this isn't, you know, a... Uh, a uh, me kind of you know speaking from experience like this just happened so here's why I came up with the tip um, but the reason why you should test your backups is because part of the recovery process from a cyber attack if you are you know if one happens to you part of that process is called um I guess there's a couple different, you know, words for it, but basically disaster recovery, right? Like once the cyber attack happens, um, the attackers been the attack has been mitigated, it's been resolved, the, the attack isn't happening anymore, say the the ransomware is run its course, it's not encrypting anything else or you got the the attacker out of the system, uh, you got rid of the trojan, you know, whatever the the malware was, it's no longer affecting your system. And part after you do kind of your damage assessment, kind of, you know, what happened, you know, what's damaged, what's still okay, that kind of a thing. The next thing part like the, the last part of it is, you know, the disaster recovery or restoring back to where you were before the attack. And part of that process is making sure that you have good backups. So in the event that, say, you know, a ransomware attack happens and your entire file server is encrypted, you can easily just roll back to your previous backup and everything's good. But you have to make sure that your backup actually works because there's a saying out there that says untested backups are wishful thinking. 
because it it's kind of true, right? If you never test your backups and verify that they work, you're just wishfully thinking that if an attack happens, your backups will save you. But how do you know that somehow, some way, something didn't happen to your backups and your archive of your backup is now corrupted and you get hacked and you try to recover from your archive that's been corrupted and you can't recover from it. So, yeah, you had a backup, but you didn't test your backup to make sure it actually worked. Um, Now, depending on you know, how much data you have, it's honestly not feasible to test everything, right? Like if you have terabytes of data or you have a very massive media library, like you have all your movie, your favorite movies and TV shows, you know, for your your Plex or your Jellyfin library or whatever, um, or you have all your music, it's almost impossible to, you know, watch all your movies, watch all your TV shows, listen to all your music, look at all your pictures, you know, all this stuff. It's really hard, you know, to actually analyze and make sure that none of your backed up data has been corrupted or uh, bit rot in any way. And by bit rot, basically... If you let data kind of sit and not touch it for a long time, there's a chance that bit rot can happen, which is essentially over time, you know, some of the ones and zeros flip and corrupts the data. Now, there are certain file systems and programs that can help mitigate this. Um, ZFS has a a scrubbing feature built in, which can try to help mitigate uh, the bit rot by using the the parity calculations that are in the pool. Uh, If it detects that there is a a bit flip in, say, one of your files, it can, you know, switch it back to what it's supposed to be. Um, So there are definitely some ways to mitigate it, but it still is a a potential... um, thing that could happen. Um, So you want to at least periodically be going through some of your data that you have backed up and just just seeing, making sure that it's okay. Uh, Or if you have a home lab, uh, maybe trying to restore... A, a VM from one of the one of your backups that you that you did like I, me personally I have I do a bunch of backup jobs for all my VMs um, so for me an example of this would be say shut down you know one of the VMs that I have and and basically create a new VM from one of my backups make sure everything's still working um, or you know, if you have, if you archive all your data or you have your, your offsite backup, uh, maybe try to, to download that backup from offsite onto a new device somewhere and just kind of, you know, browse through some of the files, make sure everything still looks good, that kind of a thing. Uh, just testing the backups to make sure that things are still good. But it gets a little bit deeper than this because. You really, if you're doing any, if you have any sort of encryption involved, you really got to be careful when testing your backups. Because, yeah, your backups might be intact, but if you encrypt your backups and you don't have the, the key to decrypt said backups, you know, backed up anywhere or securely backed up, 
uh, then you're kind of out of luck because if all your data is gone and your only copies of your key to decrypt your data is gone, it doesn't matter if your backup is valid if you can't decrypt it. <laughs> so at that point, you basically just have a bunch of random garbage ones and zeros sitting there that you can't actually do anything with. Um, so that is definitely one thing to that you really want to keep in mind, that if you're backing up any anything to deal with encryption, you need to make sure that you have your keys, one, that your keys are backed up, but also they're backed up securely so not anyone can get their hands on them. Uh, but you also need to make sure that you can always have access to it in the case that, say, um, if you have a copy of your keys on, say, your laptop and your laptop you know, drive dies or you lose your laptop or something, you don't lose your keys and now you can't decrypt your backup to, you know, restore from said backup. Um, so that's definitely something you want to keep in mind. Um, so yeah, while backups might just be something that some people think of as a way to make sure I don't lose my data, it's also a, a very critical part of the cybersecurity um, uh, recovery process when it comes to how to recover from a cyber attack. And we, and I know a, a f- a while ago on the podcast, we did a a, a uh, our cybersecurity tip was making sure that you have a a recovery plan in place. So in the event a cybersecurity you know threat happens or you're you get hacked somehow, uh, you should have some kind of a plan in place uh, to make sure uh, that you can recover from that and how you can stop it and all that good stuff. And part of that obviously was disaster recovery and testing your backups is basically just you know another part of that. Um, so yeah, if you, if you have backups, which you should, uh, make sure that you're, you know, periodically testing them, uh, to make sure that your data is actually what you think it is and not corrupted and still valid. So that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. Now, I also had a kind of a a funny thought that popped into my head this week, um, I'm not sure how many of you have heard the um, I forget what the uh, the the term is that that some people use. It's like uh, is it inner monologue? Is that what is that what people call it? I don't know. But basically, the idea of like if you want to make it sound like you're a psychopath talking to yourself. Uh, but basically, the idea of at least for me. Uh, you know, if I'm, you know, working on a project, whether that's at work um, or a, a personal project, uh, one thing that I like to do if I kind of get, if I get stuck and I'm not in a stubborn mood where I just keep banging my head against the wall trying to get it to work, which uh, listeners of the podcast know I do quite frequently against my better judgment, um, one thing that I do like to do is just just go on a walk, just try to clear my head and just kind of think about stuff, right? And while I'm on the walks, you know, sometimes ideas will come into my head about how I can can think, how I can, you know, maybe work something differently. Heck, just today, I was trying to figure out how to better concatenate strings in C. And I was, for whatever reason, I was trying to use string cat and it wasn't working, and I, I went on a walk. 
And on that walk, I got to thinking about how different ways that I can go about, um, you know, potentially fixing the problem. And I came up with one. And would you know it, it worked. Um, so, you know, the, this idea of, you know, thinking, you know, about ideas of how to solve things. Anyway, I was thinking this week that how funny it is that I am a professional software developer, right? I write software for a living. I get paid to write software. And in my free time, I also write software, but I don't get paid for it. So I am literally writing code for the privilege to be able to write code. <laughs> I, I, am, I am getting paid to write code so I can then go in my free time and continue to write more code that I don't get paid for, which I thought was just kind of a, a fun thought to think of. Um, I guess on the one hand, it's good that I, I, I like coding so much because of how much I, I do of it. Like, like there are, I kid you not, some days that aside from sleeping and eating, coding is basically all I did all day. <laughs> And then aside from, you know, the aforementioned walks that I will go on to try to come up with ideas for stuff. But, you know, speaking of coding and whatnot, I think that is a, a great segue into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week? So I, I actually did it. I know last week I mentioned I was kind of sort of on the fence, but leaning towards yes, of submitting a pull request for the forked repo I made of Jeff Geerling's top 500 benchmark. Um, if you go, if you unfamiliar, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, after this episode, go listen to last week's episode. I kind of broke it down um, in, in basically the changes that I made, uh, but Actually, technically, before last week's episode even went live, I had actually submitted the pull request. Um, but as of the recording of this podcast, that is still pending. Um, now, I mentioned in last week's episode that it's kind of out of my hands. Um, it's not my repo. It's Jeff Geerling's repo. He has He's totally in his right to ignore it say no you know it's his repo he can do what he wants um and that's totally cool um but anyone that's interested on my github i have the the forked version with my updates to it that supports um red hat based distributions like rocky linux alma linux red hat obviously uh fedora senos stream um, and also Arch-based distros. I tested on Arch and Manjaro. Not that you would be running like a server with Manjaro, but if you wanted to, if you're running Manjaro on your system and wanted to do the benchmark locally, I guess it works. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, um, so now I'm basically kind of in the waiting game. Um, but it was, as far as the pull request process itself, it was actually super easy. Um, really, all I did was I, I forked the, his repo, pushed my changes to the forked repo, and then there was like a thing on GitHub that said, like, you're, I think it was six commits ahead of Jeff's master branch. Would you like to open a pull request? And I hit yes. And then it kind of prompted me this gave this prompt of like the title and a description basically like you know kind of headline like what you changed and then the description kind of describe what you changed so aside from like you know doing a little write-up of you know the things i changed and whatnot 
it was pretty simple. Uh, and then I, you know, submitted the pool request and then began the waiting game. Um, now, like I said, I have no idea if Jeff Gearling's actually going to approve it. If he's not, really doesn't matter. Uh, the codes that I wrote is is up, up there for anyone to see on my GitHub. So uh, at, at the very least, it's it's there. Um, I, personally, I think it'd be cool uh, if it was in the main master repo of Jeff's, but at the end of the day, um, the, the main reason I did it was not to necessarily merge it into his repo, but just to add support uh, for more machines of for machines that I'd want to test um, at, at my house in my home lab. So that, that was the main reason why I wanted to do it. Um, but also, speaking of other tools that I made, um, another thing that I did was I, I've mentioned it on the podcast before. It's been a while since there haven't been any updates to it. Uh, but I have a script uh, that I've called Server Connect, which basically is a glorified Python script wrapper for SSH. Um, and, and basically the point of the script is to manage SSH connections without an SSH config file and having to manage that. Um, so... I finally, I don't know if this is necessarily a feature or a bug fix, per se. I guess it, you could, depending on how you want to argue it, you could argue it both ways. Um, but I added support for connections with hyphens in the name. Now, the reason why I say this is either a feature or a bug fix is because before, you could have hyphens in the name, but then if you tried to connect to it, you would get an error message saying that it wasn't a, val- a valid command because it had a hyphen in it. Um, but if you were to use like the hyphenated connection with like SCP or something, the built-in SCP uh, functionality I put in there, it would work. <laughs> so depending on how you look at it, it could either be a feature or a bug fix. Um so it is what it is. Uh, but but basically the reason why before it would say it was an unrecognized command was initially when I was writing the script, uh, first off, I didn't know argparse existed. <laughs> um, and if you're not familiar, argparse is basically a, a package in Python that basically does all of the... Um, flag handling for you. Um, So if you run a terminal-based program, um, you'll have, you have the ability to pass various flags to um, configure things, um, add different functionality, uh, change different variables of the program during runtime, that kind of a thing. And argparse basically is a way to kind of handle all that for you. and like I said, I wrote this script way before I knew argparse existed. So I basically did all the arg parsing myself. Um, still do. Uh, partly because I did look into uh, use switching over to argparse. But how argparse like formats the help text part of it, 
I didn't really like how it was formatting my output text, and I wanted more control over that. And in order to get as much control as I wanted, I'd have to add so much to the script. And I'm kind of at the point where, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> um, and I didn't really feel like essentially overhauling a ton of the script just to add arg parse in there. But anyway, that's a kind of its own tangent. But the reason I bring that up was the way I was checking for arguments was if there was a hyphen. <laughs> so if there was a hyphen, I'd be like, oh, I have an argument coming in. So then I would take what was after the hyphen as an argument. And obviously, if you have a connection name with a hyphen, that would break things. So I basically kind of threw a simple check in there um, to see if it's actually a connection um, and if it is, you know, just connect like you would normally um, and kind of made the whole connection process a little bit more robust. Um, and then I also added uh, support for SSH commands. And what I mean by that is before, if you wanted to use the script, you had to have a connection already in your your list of connections. So you would have already had to add the connection. But what I did here was basically allowed you to just you know type you know connect and then username at you know ip address or domain like you would normally if you were connecting via ssh um now personally <laughs> um if you're going to you know just type in the username and an ip address or domain name i'd still just use ssh anyway just because it's less typing um ssh is three letters <laughs> Uh, compared to connect. Um, but for me personally, uh, I've been kind of in the habit. I've, I use the tool so much that anytime I want to SSH into anything, I just out of habit type connect and then, you know, whatever. Uh, so the reason I added that feature was mainly more for me, which in all reality, that's how I add all my features is it's just something that I, I realize I want that doesn't exist yet. So I add it. <laughs> um, and I, I will say, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before that this this tool is hands down the most used tool is it, probably the most useful tool I've ever written purely for the fact that it's the only tool that I actually use that I wrote on a regular basis. Like I use that tool maybe, I guess not every day, but pretty darn close to every day uh, compared to some of the other pieces, pieces of software I've written that I kind of write and then don't really touch ever again or even use personally. Um, but this one's different just because of, of how useful it is. Um, but speaking also about SSH connections, um, one thing that anyone with a home lab is probably well aware of is if you get a new device and you have a large home lab, it is quite annoying to have to hit yes a bajillion times to accept all the fingerprints for all of the servers that you are trying to connect to. Especially when you're trying to run an Ansible playbook and you just get spammed with, uh, would you like to ex accept fingerprints on every single one of the connections and the Ansible script just crashes because it, it, it just can't do anything because of all the 
prompts even no, no matter how fast you type yes uh, it, it doesn't matter um, so basically what I did was I wrote a script that will automatically accept all of the fingerprints for me and the way I did this was granted terrible security because you actually should be accepting all fingerprints just in case you know man in the middle attacks that kind of a thing um, but the the theory is I am taking the the C programming language approach and giving you the power but also allowing you to easily shoot yourself in the foot if you want to. <laughs> uh, and uh, because the reason I the reason I say that is it basically reads in from a, a, basically a text file of all the IP addresses to auto connect to and will just essentially ignore the SSH. Um, fingerprints basically ignore the strict key checking basically disable that and connect in and immediately exit from all of those connections so you automatically accept all the fingerprints and this is not great for security because if there is a man in the middle attack potentially going on um, normally if you have uh, the strict key checking enabled which it is by default uh, SSH would notify you like hey uh, something fishy's going on here might be a man in the middle attack, but if you disable that, uh, you could potentially be susceptible to a man in the middle attack. But again, because this is my home lab, I control everything and I know who everyone is. Uh, that's not necessarily a concern for me. Uh, but yes, technically, it is a, a not smart uh, when it comes to security. But again, I am taking the C programming language approach and assume that you know what you're doing and allow you to shoot yourself in the foot if you so choose to. Um, so that was another thing I did. And in addition, speaking of scripts, uh, I haven't talked about this one in a while. Uh, my CPU benchmark API, I, I finally got back to that because as we'll, we'll get into, I did a lot more um, in that department. Uh, but basically, I was looking through that code this week and I was like, man, this is... This is gross. This is disgusting. Uh, <laughs> um, and I'm sure there are many of you software developers out there that will write some code, write a script, something, leave it for a while, and then you'll come back to it and be like, man, who wrote this code? Gosh, they... What did they, did they even know what they were doing? Um, and of course, that that person being you, um, in this case, it being me, um, I was just looking at it and I was like, man, why did I do it this way? <laughs> and so part of the CPU benchmark API that well, I'm calling it in, in reality, it's just a web scraper. In, in when you, when it all boils down to what is a web scraper. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, so, so stick with me. Uh, but the basically how it works is it uses the a, a Python package called Beautiful Soup. And basically what that allows you to do, there's it has a bunch of functionality, but one of the things that it can do is parse HTML for you. So basically what, it, what this script does is it will reach out to cpubenchmark.net it will go to all of the CPUs that you want. It will pull down 
that web page and will extract the data from it. So it'll extract things like the name, the the clock speed, the year it was benchmarked, uh, what its score is, how many cores it has, how many threads, you know, all that good stuff. Um, and I really didn't make good use at all of Beautiful Soup. Re- I mean, it was horrible. Basically, what I was doing was rather than being smart about it and being like, hey, beautiful soup, uh, find me this tag in particular where I know my data is. I was like, hey, beautiful soup, give me the entire web page, but strip out all the HTML flags. (laughs) And while that worked, and technically you could maybe argue it's more robust that way, so if the developers of the CPU benchmark.net site changed some of their tags, as long as the, you know, the, the things I was looking for, like, say, CPU class or average score or things like that, that would still be in there, so the tag would be irrelevant. But the amount of manual substring processing, or in layman's terms, the amount of amount of chopping up of words that I had to do in order to extract the data I wanted was quite hideous looking. So I revamped the code to make actual use of Beautiful Soup and actually use it to how it's supposed to be used. Um, so that was the update I made there. And then I mentioned talking about web scrapers and how that that's basically what it is. And I wrote two additional ones. The first one essentially being my CPU benchmark API, but rather than you inputting what CPUs you want, it just grabs all of them. Like, it it, it literally grabs all of them. It, it goes, it uses a another Python package called Selenium, which allows you to basically use, have Python control a web browser for you to, like, automate things in a web browser. So, basically what I did was I used Selenium to open up a Firefox window navigate to cpubenchmarks.net, hit the drop down to show all of the CPUs because by default I think it only shows like 250. Um, So basically show all the CPUs, then extract that HTML page, and then from there extract all of the links for all the CPUs, store that in an array, and then go through that array, navigate to each page, and pull the data that I want, just like the the CPU benchmark API works. Now, obviously, uh, doing all of that in a single thread for, I think it's like 4,880-some CPUs would take quite a bit of time. And uh, if you listen to the podcast for a while, you know that is not going to fly with me. Um, so I multi-processed this thing because of course I did. Um, and just as a quick recap, since we're in Python world, multi-threading and multi-processing are two different things. Um, unlike say a C or a C++ where multi-threading and multi-processing are essentially one in the same in Python world, 
multiprocessing actually splits into a new process and will run on a different core of your CPU, whereas multi-threading basically just shares a single CPU. Now, one thing you can do with Python is you can kind of integrate multiprocessing with multi-threading. So you can have one process that has multiple threads to it. So in that sense, you could, you know, divvy up your tasks that way. But just strictly multi-threading something in Python, unless you're doing something with I.O., you're basically always or input output related stuff like you're waiting on user input or waiting uh for for a file you know to write or something i don't know uh but unless you're doing some kind of like task that's heavily reliant on waiting for stuff uh multi-threading in python generally probably isn't the way to go especially if you want to process a lot of data um like trying to um, process 400 or 4,880 some CPUs worth of data. <laughs> um, kind of want to do that in parallel. Um, so I, I multi-processed it, which I already had that capability built into the CPU benchmark API. So it was really just copy paste. Uh, but regardless, that's built in there. And I did the same thing for the video benchmarks.net, uh, which is essentially the same thing, but just for GPUs. Um, and that one still needs more work. Um, that one is a lot more hit or miss on the data, it seems. Like some, a lot of the GPUs just basically have nothing. <laughs> it's just like the name and a score and that's it. And then others actually have information about the GPU, like how fast the 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 GPU cores run, how fast the memory is, how much memory it has. Like some of them are just balled out and then others basically have nothing. Um, but I talked about web scraping and I guess I kind of want to go into what that is. Um, and if you haven't really picked up on what it is by me describing these past couple projects, basically the idea of a web scraper is to navigate to a web page, download the HTML or some other kind of data from said web page, and then do something with the data. Um, now, whether that is throwing it all into a, a database for processing later, or if you want to use that data to analyze trends in marketplaces or... I don't know. I mean, there's tons of different things you want to you can do with data. If you're into like data science or something, this is like way up your alley. Um, you know, of various things that you can do. And the reason why Python's a great tool for this is because of all the various packages and libraries that exist within Python to allow you to do this. Now, obviously, I mentioned you know the the beautiful soup and Selenium components, and those are fantastic for when it comes to, you know, getting uh, web pages and, and, and processing them. Another great tool is Requests, which is essentially a way that you can just download um, the URLs. Now, one thing you potentially have to be careful with is some websites are really picky about the headers that they use. And if you're, if you're not familiar with headers when it comes to web browsing, when you are on your computer or on your phone or whatever, 
you basically have what's called a user agent, which basically tells the website information about you. So ideally, the web page can more accurately display the web content for your device um, because you don't want to be displaying, you know, a massive website built for a desktop, you know, a, say a 27-inch monitor and display that on someone's you know, phone, right? You you, you don't want to do that. Um, so that's part of the reason, the thing that uh, that you know these uh, user agents and headers are used for. Um, other uh, websites have a little more malicious intentions and use that to track you around the web because depending on what your user agent is, it can be fairly specific um, and pretty identifiable. <laughs> Um, so that is one thing to be mindful of. Uh, but another thing that some web pages do is if, depending on what your user agent is, they might just straight up deny you access, um, to prevent from things like bots and whatnot. So if you're just, you know, reaching out with essentially a no user agent or just a generic, Hey, I'm Python, um, you might get denied. Um, so there is some, there is a way that you can actually add, you know, headers and user agent stuff to your Python requests, uh, to potentially get around that. Um, but I guess getting back to why Python's a good tool for web scraping, so it has ways to easily pull down web pages and process them and process the HTML and all that. But then in addition to that, it has a bunch of fantastic uh, math and data science packages and libraries. Um, if you, The biggest ones that obviously come to my mind are NumPy and Pandas. Um, two fantastic math and data science uh, packages for Python. Um, if you're do, planning on doing anything data science related, you definitely want to be checking out those packages and Python specific. Um, personally, I wouldn't even waste my time with another programming language like R or a uh, some... Uh, I guess I'll, uh, I'll I'll call it a programming language, uh, MATLAB. Um, now, depending on who you ask in the uh, computer science and software development world, MATLAB is not a programming language, depending on who you ask. Um, so I will leave it up to you to decide if you think it is a programming language. Um, but Python, in my opinion, is way better than any of them. Um, and it's just super powerful. There's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Um, so if you're if you're planning on doing any kind of web scraping, a great way to do it is to download the HTML page, process it uh, with something like Beautiful Soup, and then store that in some kind of a dictionary. And then you can convert that to a pandas data frame. And then you can do all sorts of magical. Uh, magicalness with it, like creating plots and and tables and diagrams and all kinds of stuff, and then exporting it to a, a CSV file or basically an Excel file is insanely easy uh, with pandas. Um, or you could just use regular Python to write it to a CSV file. Regardless, Python's pretty darn good uh, for when it comes to uh, processing, you know, web scraping stuff. Now, could you? write it in C or C++ or Rust or Go or Java, you absolutely could, um, but it would be a lot more work. Um, you potentially... See, the nice thing about Python 
is it's so easy to install packages for it. Like you don't have to worry about going out trying to find a Git repo or some other tool that you can download the library for and make sure all the includes are in the right spot and make sure you're referencing the headers and you got the libraries all in order. No, Python, you literally just, if you don't have it, you do pip install name of the package and then you import the package and you're done. That's it. It's easy. Um, there's a reason why Python is a, a very commonly used language for beginners uh, because of one, how easy to use it is in that sense, and also just how easy the syntax is. Um, like there are some instances where I'm writing if statements in Python that I'm literally just writing English. <laughs> Like if I want to check if there for like a substring, for example, it's literally English. Like I basically say if, you know, substring I'm looking for. So let's say I'm looking for um say I'm looking for, for dark assassin, right? I'm looking for dark assassin in, in, in some string. I literally can say if dark assassin in string, which is basically English, um, uh, rather than, you know, other programming languages where you'd have to say like if you dark assassin uh or i guess it'd be if you know string dot substring it, it, it's it's not as englishy as you know if dark assassin in string um and or you know similarly you would say if not dark assassin in string or if dark assassin not in string it there are some python uh Parts of the Python programming language that literally just read like English. And the funny thing is, is if you ever write pseudocode or have to, or someone tells you to write pseudocode, basically you can just write a write Python, and it's basically the same thing. Um, and it is kind of funny if you look at pseudocode. The syntax for, I guess, quote good pseudocode is basically Python <laughs> syntax. Um, but yeah, so back to, I guess, web scraping. So there's a lot of uses for web scraping. And, and depending on what websites you're trying to scrape, it can be a little harder than others, specifically if they have something like a, you know, a CAPTCHA, <laughs> which is to prevent bots from, you know, scraping their, their websites and whatnot. Um, and then other things you also have to be kind of mindful of is if there's any websites that you want to scrape that are, you know, behind accounts. So like if you actually have to log into the site, that's something else that you have to keep in mind. Now, if you, depending on the site and the credentials that you need to log in, you could just use something like Selenium, uh, basically automate the whole process of signing in. You can easily do that in Selenium with Python. Uh, but like I mentioned, if there's any kind of CAPTCHA or any kind of two-factor authentication, uh, you're, there still will be some need for user interaction. Um, so that is, you know, one thing to keep in mind. And the other thing, too, if it is behind some kind of user login, you'll really have to watch your, your headers and your user agents when you're trying to request data because... If you don't have a valid one, you're not going to get anything. And this is one of the instances that I mentioned where you actually need to have valid user agents uh, and valid headers in order for the website to actually accept your request and send you back data. Um, so that is a, another thing to keep in mind. But in my case, for the, the couple websites that I was trying to scrape, you didn't need any of that. Um, now, what am I going to be doing with this data? 
Um, honestly, probably nothing in, in all reality. Uh, the main thing, I, I just wanted to do it because I wanted to do it. Um, and actually, I'll let you in on a little secret here. Um, I've mentioned how many times now on the podcast that the reason why I talk about the nerdy things I do is not to like gloat or make myself feel good. It's to give others inspiration because I get inspiration from others. And I bring this up again because the reason why I got back into my CPU benchmark API and writing these two web scrapers was because I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole this week of watching this this guy. Uh, I forget what his, his YouTube channel is. I think it's like something making data useful, some, make data useful, something like that. I forget exactly what it was. Um, but basically he was, you know, writing various web scrapers to scrape data from websites. And I was like, man, that's cool. I want. I want to. I'm going. I'm going to write some some Python scripts to to do that. And that that's how it happened. I I kid you not. That's that's how it happened. So, I get inspiration from hearing project ideas that others talk about, watching tutorials from others. So again, the reason why I, I talk about the nerdy things is hopefully someone out there that's listening uh, will hear some of the things that I do and get inspiration to either do something similar or do something else or just get in inspiration to get out there and uh, do something with the home lab, do something in IT, do something with programming, do something with software development, just do something and try to inspire others to get into this field that as sometimes as I, as much as I love it, you know, I love it a lot, would not trade it for the world. And, and there are times as I've mentioned on here before and and just in general, there are times where I want to throw my technology out the window. I have wanted to hurl laptops out the window before. Um, but at the end of the day, I always keep coming back to it because I just find it so rewarding uh, when I actually you know get stuff working that I, that I want to and and see projects come together and it's it's just so rewarding to me and I just hope, that some someone out there that's listening, you know, maybe get some inspiration from that. And um, before I get too off, too off gone on this tangent here, I think we should probably try to bring this all back together. And we talked in the very beginning of the podcast about a couple of technology companies. And technology companies write software, so maybe this is... I'm kidding. This is a a terrible segue. We're just going to cut to the chase, guys. Trivia question time. Um, So, the trivia question for this week was, which of the following companies was founded first? Apple, Nintendo, Microsoft, or Sony? And bonus points if you can get the year. Now, if you said Microsoft, I'm sorry. Uh, Bill Gates was not the first. Not even close. Um, Not going to lie, he was close to 100 years too late. (laughs) Not quite more like 90-some, but, you know, who's counting? Um, The real first company to be founded was actually Nintendo back in 18... 1889. That's right, 1889. 
was when Nintendo was founded. Now, obviously, back in 1889, they weren't making video games. The the Game Boy obviously didn't exist yet. The Switch wasn't even a thought. Pikachu wasn't even in in the realm of possibility. Um, Back when Nintendo was first founded, they actually originally were making playing cards uh, before they actually, way before they ever got into, you know, making video games. Uh, But yeah, that is one cool piece of trivia. Nintendo has been around since the 1800s. How about that? And they're a technology company. They make video games now, and they've been around for over a century. How about that? So that was your trivia question for the week. And if you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you leave it a rating and review and subscribe to the Dark Assassins podcast if you haven't done so already. And be sure to share with a friend or family member for some maybe inspiration for potential programming projects. Or maybe they need to test their backups because they brag about how great their 321 backup strategy is, but they've never actually tested their 321 backup strategy. Um couldn't be me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but if you have any questions about this episode or if you have any topic ideas for future episodes, you can shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. Uh, the link for that is obviously, as always, down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember, bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassin's Podcast.